right, this is the second part of our special edition, this roundtable that we're doing on the Pharisees because they, they play an important role and I think in many ways are so misunderstood in the, the Gospels. And uh, with this second part, it's just going to be me and, and the guest that we've had on before, so I won't do a lot of introduction for him. But uh, this is Jeff Chadwick. You'll remember him when we did Luke 2. Uh, and a, a dear friend of mine that uh, we've spent a lot of time in Israel together, and he spent a lot of time there, both uh, teaching at the Jerusalem Center and um, excavating and so on, and uh, has taught so much about the culture of the New Testament world, teaching uh, the, the course on like uh, ancient Near Eastern studies and culture and so on at the Jerusalem Center. I think more than anyone else, you've taught that course more than anyone. And uh, uh, so you've had a lot of time to research Think, teach about and 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 so on about the pharisees and uh so we're here to hear your take why don't we'll give you a little while to just kind of talk about uh, and i know you've written about it I've, I've read what you've written uh and so you can talk about the pharisees a little bit and then we'll just dialogue about it okay it's great to, so thank great to be with you uh carrie as usual uh old buddies that have been around the world with each other uh, from egypt to jezreel and uh, all of the places in between jordan and Turkey and yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and then terrible things happening in Turkey today, of course, because of the earthquake. I think all of our prayers really should head toward Turkey and Syria because thousands of people have been infected by this. And that's just uh, off the record from what we're talking about. But uh, that's, you know, a part of being a disciple of Christ is to uh, pray for others and do what you can to help. And uh, and may we may we somehow do that. Yeah. And we both have friends in Turkey and Syria, and I, I don't think they were affected by this, but it just makes it more real, and you do pray for them. Well, it, it affects the entire region in, in ways that impact everybody. So, yeah, just yeah. remember people in your prayers, my friends. It's, uh, yeah. it's a great thing to do. And I'm happy to be here talking about the uh, the Pharisees of the New Testament and the Pharisees of Jewish society 2,000 years ago, because as... Uh, as Kerry knows, and as I've written and, and taught for, for decades now, um, Pharisees have a, a fairly bad reputation in Christian conversation in general over the centuries, and and therefore also in Latter-day Saint conversation. And uh, it, it's, it's not one really uh, that's deserved, quite frankly. Uh, I've, I've looked at this carefully for for so many years that uh that I'm probably the oldest Pharisee in the church and um <laughs> I I think that uh while there were some negative episodes that are recorded in the New Testament between Jesus and certain Pharisees uh we we very often blame the wrong people in the New Testament for uh opposition to and even uh the the rejection of and and death of the savior and the pharisees are not the address for that in fact to a great extent they turn out to be the good guys of the new testament and of the era and that's uh that's an unusual message to hear but it's it's the one i'm i'm here to talk about today um I, I've written about this, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell people where they can find it, if that's okay. Yeah, I don't make any money place. off this. There's no, uh, there's yeah. no uh, conflict of interest. The, the fee that Deseret paid me to write this chapter was spent uh, over 20 years ago going to Olive Garden. So uh, you know <laughs> how, how notoriously small those fees are. Yeah. Uh, but there was this wonderful uh, series on, on the New Testament that came out uh, – Oh, shoot. Now, uh, about 20 to 25 years ago, called The Life and Teachings of Jesus Christ, edited by our friends uh, Richard Holtzapfel and, and Thomas Wayman. And uh, it was a wonderful three-volume set with an additional volume about the Acts of the Apostles that was added to it. And uh, just, uh, you know, put together by, uh, by a who's who, really of uh, 21st century uh, specialists in New Testament studies. They're all on the back there. I think every one of them is special, except one Yehu listed second there. Uh, and uh, and that's who's talking to you. But in, in the first edition of that of that work, um, I'll, I'll put it up here closer to the camera. Uh, and it's still in print today. You can buy these anywhere. Uh, we don't make any money off them anymore. The contributing editor uh, authors, like I said, that was spent decades ago. But uh, uh, 
I wrote a, a, a chapter about the Jewish groups of the New Testament period, and uh, it included a robust um, discussion of the Pharisees, as well as the Sadducees, who were the real opponents and enemies of Jesus, and a little bit more about the Temple of Herod and a number of other things. But uh, the discussion on the Pharisees in there, I think, is is really helpful. And if anyone's looking for a good written reference to what we'll talk about today, that's that's available um, at your local stores and, and wherever. It's still in print after all these years. Yeah. Um, but basically, the Pharisees are a, a much maligned and much uh, misunderstood group who were the heart and soul of Judaism in the days of Jesus. And the remarkable thing about the Pharisees is that they appear all through our, our New Testament documents, in all four Gospels, in the Book of Acts robustly, uh, in, in the letters, at least letters of Paul. Uh, Paul, of course, uh, was a Pharisee. That's an important thing to remember, is that a huge chunk of your New Testament was written by a Pharisee, and by a Pharisee who stood up in front of a, a huge crowd of his Jewish fellows at the temple in Jerusalem and said, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And being at the same time an apostle of Jesus Christ found no contradiction in that statement. Um, and this is remarkable. Another thing that's obvious about the Pharisees is that many joined the church. And also did not consider themselves to be divorced from their identity as Pharisees. Acts, uh, the book of Acts in a number of chapters talks about the Pharisees as contributing members of the church. Uh, one phrase talks about the Pharisees which believed, meaning right. Pharisee members of the church. And uh, in Acts 15, this very important discussion uh, about whether Gentiles should have to be circumcised when they join the church and observe the ordinances of the law of Moses, uh, the discussion on this very important issue, which was entertained by the apostles that would make the decision, was driven by two Pharisee groups that saw the matter differently. Uh, Pharisees who were members of the church that felt the Gentiles should have to be circumcised and keep the commandments of God's law code, the law of Moses, and those who thought that that was not necessary, especially in terms of circumcision and the ordinance base of the law of Moses. And both of those groups, one led by Paul and the other led by Pharisee members of the Jerusalem church, uh, were arguing from good faith perspectives that simply approached the question differently. Uh, one group uh, uh, saying, listen, these are the commandments, okay? Uh, they're here for us to live. We don't excuse people from the commandments in the church. But Paul, taking the more pragmatic view that there is no way that the gospel of Christ will spread among Gentiles if the, uh, uh, the aspects of the ordinance base of the law of Moses has to continue with them. So uh, and, and we should be clear that we don't have a clear statement in the Gospels from Christ like we do in the Book of Mormon about uh, the law being fulfilled and that and that and so on. Uh, maybe so the Savior said it at some point, but we, we don't have record of it. So they didn't at this point. They seem to not have either. Yeah. And, and by the way, when you get into that, the second volume of this series, which has a different cover, but it's the same thing. There's another chapter by yours truly in that second volume called what Jesus taught the Jews about the law of Moses. Yeah. And it investigates that Jerusalem conference uh, of Acts 15 and talks about that whole issue and then emphasizes the Pharisees, which argued the two sides of the question, which was decided by Peter, the chief apostle, in favor of Paul's argument. That's an important right. thing to note. But the Pharisees were involved in good faith doctrinal teaching and discussion in the church and were were huge contributors. Another thing that I hope people will, will see when they read in our scriptures, uh, the book of Acts chapter 5, that remarkable story of when the 12 apostles were brought up on capital charges 
in front of the entire Sanhedrin, which Acts 5 calls the uh, the Senate of the children of Israel. And this was serious because the chief priests and elders, that is to say the Sadducees, were going to find the apostles guilty of leading a seditious movement, a movement uh, that recognized Jesus as Messiah, even though he was dead, recognized Jesus as king of Israel, which would be from the Sadducees' point of view, a direct challenge to uh, Roman authority and their association with the Roman Empire as collaborators. And so, while you don't always pick it up in Acts 5, the apostles were in danger for their lives in that episode. And it was the Pharisees that saved them. Yeah. Gamaliel, the, the grandson of Hillel, who stood up on that occasion and uh, persuaded the Pharisees uh, on the Sanhedrin, who were in the majority, to vote to acquit and also to um, essentially immunize the apostles from any further action by the Sanhedrin. Yeah. In other words, leave these men alone. This was huge. It saved the apostles. It saved the church. Yeah, it allowed the church to continue to spread. It meant that apostles could do what they would do without danger of further prosecution by the Sanhedrin, because in saying, leave them alone, and to him they agreed, the Sanhedrin immunized the apostles against further prosecution. This was a huge thing in Acts chapter 5, and it was the Pharisees that did this with, with Gamaliel's remarkable statement we don't know if this movement is from God or not, but we don't want to be found opposing it if it happens to be, which is a remarkable statement of Gamaliel, which is not recorded in the Talmud, as yeah. you might expect, but recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. Yeah. And, and and Gamaliel is no small figure uh, in, in, we could say, either rabbinic or Pharisaic history, right? He's... he's uh, He's he well the, regarded and and uh, persuasive. He, he is one of the the two or three biggest players in Judaism and among the Pharisees of the first century A.D. Yeah, uh, the only greater than him would have been his grandfather Hillel. Yeah. the great Hillel, the great Pharisee scholar and 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 um, um, you know, sage who really lived in the generation prior to Jesus, but who was still alive, according to our best understanding. Hillel was still alive at the time Jesus was born. Um, he had he had come to Jerusalem in the decades uh, um, much earlier, that is to say the decades BC, as a young man had moved from Babylon to Jerusalem and had gone from being a poor, you know, a, a Jewish immigrant back to the Holy Land to being the most revered Jewish sage of Jerusalem and Judea in general. Uh, by the time yeah. that he died, sometime after around 10 AD, right? I have a theory that I would be willing to put money down if there was any way to see what the real answer was. I, I think I would win the bet. Uh, but it's, it's only a theory and a very strong suspicion that the boy Jesus met Hillel. At the temple uh, when he was 12. It, he that, was that, there that's among the doctors of the law, uh, yeah. asking and answering questions and how they were amazed at his wisdom. Much of the way that Jesus taught and the positions that he took on important issues of the law of Moses mirror the types of things that Hillel is known to have taught. Now, I'm not saying that that means Jesus adopted Hillel's position. Jesus' positions were his. But the interesting thing is that they correspond so very well to many important things that Hillel taught, which were in some ways the opposite of his colleague Shammai, yeah. of yeah. whom main schools of thought among the Pharisees, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. So I suspect that Jesus as a boy may have met and been impressed by and also impressed the great uh, Hillel. Yeah. And possibly uh, his, his grandson, uh, Gamaliel, at uh, the same place. So, and same well, th th that's the interesting thing, because uh, a, a Gamaliel may have only been years older than Jesus himself. Yeah. 
um, maybe maybe a decade older, but uh, but certainly um, viable in his adulthood at the time the Book of Acts was happening. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. it's fun stuff to think about. Now, important for people to understand that Pharisees were a very diverse group of people. Uh, there weren't just Pharisees and they all believed the same thing. To, to say Pharisees in the first century would be roughly like saying Protestants now. There's right. all that's, kinds uh, of right. approaches to the to religion. And uh, there were various schools of thought and teaching among the Pharisees, of which the two most prominent that, that affected so much of Judaism afterward were the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, uh, the, the kind of chief um, uh, uh, teachers of their day in that generation in which Jesus was born. Now, the school of Hillel was led at the time of Jesus' adulthood and at the time of the apostles in the book of Acts, by Hillel's grandson, Gamaliel, mm -hmm. whom you see not only in Acts chapter 5, we usually say Gamaliel, right? But uh, but Gamaliel is how we pronounce it. You see him not only as the, as the most chief leader of the Pharisees in Acts chapter 5, but Paul, in his epistles, says that he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. Yeah. Which means that Paul attended the school of Hillel in Jerusalem, where Gamaliel was the chief instructor. And it's interesting that Paul's attitudes toward the law of Moses with regard to Jewish compliance was so much, you know, affected by, by the school of Hillel and Gamaliel. Very important aspect, I think. Um, the school of Shammai was stricter. Uh, more conservative than the school of Hillel. The school of Hillel tended to take uh, more spiritual humanistic approaches to commandment keeping, whereas Shammai was sometimes rigid and unbending. You know that old trope, and it is a trope, Carrie, that we have uh, that appears in manuals and commentaries and in teaching all over in Christianity and also uh, in among the Latter-day Saints as well, uh, is that uh, the Pharisees were nitpicky, you know, um, letter of the law kind of people who had no spirit about them, etc., and would argue about whether an egg was laid on the Sabbath and how many steps you could take on the Sabbath. And you, if someone had broken their arm, you couldn't set the bone on the Sabbath and all kinds of things that are frankly misrepresentations. They're in our literature they are simply wrong, and they bear a false witness about Pharisees, which I don't think is fair. It's true that the, the school of Shammai was so emphatic about Sabbath compliance and not working on the Sabbath that they regarded practicing of, of health services, uh, uh, practicing the arts and the work of healthcare as work that was not to be done on the Sabbath. And so it, it was, uh, as a matter of fact, a, a view of the house of Shammai, the, the school of Shammai, that, um, that healthcare uh, should wait, if at all possible, until the Sabbath was over, uh, even in terms of setting a bone. This is true. But this was not the minor, this was not the majority Pharisee belief. It was not the way that people in general among the Jews felt. If you were injured on the Sabbath, you attended someone. If if life or health was in danger in, in normative Jewish thought, uh, the, um, the, the restrictions of the Sabbath were suspended. And this was the position of Hillel. The house of Hillel, the school of Hillel, which was the greater Pharisee, um, uh, you know, uh, tradition, held that any threat to life or health suspended the restrictions of the Sabbath. Therefore, whenever you see Pharisees opposing Jesus because he's healed on the Sabbath, it's not all Pharisees. It would be the house of Shammai that are present in that synagogue that are upset that he's healed a person. But you can guess that in that same synagogue were also Pharisees, though unreported by Matthew or Luke, who were 
applauding Jesus and saying, yes, master, that's exactly what you should do on the Sabbath is render the aid that is needed. And, and I think important. Yeah, it is. I think this is one of the things that you brought up and, and we I mentioned a little in the other part of the roundtable, not to paint the Pharisees with one brushstroke. Um, and that uh, when you see something like this, uh, arguments over Sabbath observance and healing on the Sabbath and so on, to know that uh, that that's a specific group, and I either House of Shammai or it could be some people who had become political opponents who are using House of Shammai arguments to try and cause problems or something along those lines. We don't know what all is going on behind the scenes, but it doesn't represent all of Judaism. It doesn't even represent all of uh, Pharisaism, uh, but it it must have represented at least a few. Right now, for example. Um... Nicodemus, a Pharisee, is very attracted to Jesus. Uh, Nicodemus had seen miracles that Jesus did at the season of Passover. I don't know if he had healed anybody on Passover day, which was a um, a Sabbath. But right. in John 5, on a holiday that was probably Rosh Hashanah and not Passover, Jesus did heal a man who was paralyzed, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, at the pool of Bethesda. And... Um, uh, you know, this is consistent with uh, a Hillelite approach, a Pharisee approach to uh, to blessing people in terms of health care on the Sabbath. And you don't see that that um, that Nicodemus has lost his uh, respect for Jesus because of John five, because later on in John seven, Nicodemus is arguing vehemently in favor of of his fellow uh, uh, folks on the Sanhedrin giving Jesus attention and listening to what he has to say. Yeah. Nicodemus, a Pharisee who I'm sure was a Hillelite, had great respect. So did Joseph of Arimathea. And, and so did many others who uh, either became his disciples during the time of the four Gospels or clearly in the book of Acts when it talks about the Pharisees which joined the church. Right. Now, you know, one of the th backgrounds of, about the great Hillel uh, and I, by the way, have his have a biography of Hillel on the on my shelf behind me. It's a is a special kind of a, a an interesting person in in my in my study. Um, Hillel had as a young man when he migrated to Jerusalem when he came as a Jew from Babylon where he'd been born to Jerusalem to to live there. Uh, he was quite poor, but he wanted to learn. And so he was he was involved in in going to the schools of the Pharisees, even in, in the mid-first century BC. Uh, but he couldn't afford the entry fee because these are schools, it's private school. You know, you pay a yeah. you, you pay a couple of pruta to get in. And uh at a certain point he was he was too poor to afford that. So he would sit outside, says uh the uh the tradition about him, and listen at the window. And one winter he was sitting outside and as rarely happens sometimes it snows and it snowed a freezing snow and uh they found him after the class was over uh frozen outside the window overcome with hypothermia as he was listening to the lesson through the window the sage who was not named of that school had the students bring him inside and start a fire to warm him up now, it is specifically forbidden to start a fire on the Sabbath. Yep. But in that case, for that sage, the threat to human life superseded the restriction of the Sabbath. And Hillel was saved by being warmed up by a fire that the person who he couldn't afford the entry to the school for had his disciples start to save Hillel. And Hillel remembered that forever. Forever. And that guided his attitude about the sabbath being more important uh than most other things but not as important as human life and health now i, I didn't let know me, that let me just tell people about this a little bit if i could because this is so interesting shamai's approach to this question was logical Shammai's approach, if I could characterize it, because because it's a long approach in the Talmud, but when you when you read the um, the uh, arguments, and by the way, uh, uh, at Hebrew University, I actually studied uh, the Talmud and the tractate Shabbat. Uh, this was assigned to me by a teacher, 
when I wanted another tractate, but he said, no, you need to learn about Shabbat if you're a New Testament guy. And so, <laughs> so what that, that's the Babylonian you, Talmud. He's that's the Babylonian Talmud, right. Uh-huh. The, the and, Shabbat, the, and, the, uh, and the tractate, tractate Shabbat right there. Yeah. And um, so it's a, it's a big deal with me. Uh, so Shammai's view was that, and in Torah, for Judaism, and, and this goes back to the Pharisees, right? The every, Everything comes down to precedent. It's it's very legalistic, even though mm-hmm. it's very real and infused with spirit. And so for Shammai, as he looked at the way things happened, he saw in Genesis 1 that God creates the world. And he creates all things. And then by the time you get to the end of Genesis 1 and over into what we call Genesis 2, he sanctifies the Sabbath. Right? Right. Then you get down to Genesis 2, 5 or 6, and then you see the story of Adam made from the dust of the earth, Eve from the rib of Adam. And so the way that Shammai read the very beginning of Torah was that the Sabbath comes before Adam and Eve. Mm. And therefore, the the sanctity and priority of the Sabbaths uh, is one step ahead of, of man and woman, as described in the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. Hillel, on the other hand, looked at what we call Genesis 1 and noted that in Genesis 1, the, ch- the verse we call chapter 26, you have there the creation of humankind. God created man and woman in his own image, male and female, he created them and said unto them, multiply and replenish the earth. So Hillel read this not as the Sabbath being the priority issue with Adam and Eve following slightly after, but the creation of humankind, man and woman, preceding the designation and sanctification of the Sabbath. And therefore, Hillel said, no, my friend Shammai, I understand what you're saying, but as I read the Torah, the priority is with human creation and life. And therefore, anything that endangers that outranks the sanctification of the Sabbath. And that's why Hillel felt you could heal on the Sabbath, whereas Shammai felt that you couldn't. It was a different understanding of the priority. And this was a big deal. But wherever you see in the New Testament that there are there are, are um, Pharisees which are angry because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath, okay, you may know that those are the Shemaiites, but that there are Hillelites not being mentioned by the gospel writer that are going, yes, master, that is exactly the way it should be. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. Now, now that's more on Pharisees than anybody would want to know. By the way, there were times when Jesus, in his ruling, would more mirror something that Shammai taught than what Hillel taught. For example, in his teachings on divorce, Mm. where Shammai was much more strict than Hillel's view. Hillel's view of divorce was that you could divorce for practically any reasonable circumstance. But Shammai had ruled only for sexual misconduct. And Shammai's view is closer to the way that you see Jesus speaking about divorce. Uh, For example, in the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew 5, or or also when we read later in Matthew uh, about, about his views on divorce. And this confused his apostles, by the way. Uh, who answer, well, maybe, Master, it's not good to marry if it's that tough to divorce. But yeah. Jesus said, well, this is this is not for everybody, but that's 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 the yeah. concept of God, you know, saying that, that man and woman should should join and, and no force should put them asunder. So yeah, that's the ideal for. was over the line. But yeah. mostly the Hillelite Pharisee tradition, which, by the way, in Judaism, eventually won most of the debates in historical Judaism. Things that happen in Judaism today, like ambulances and hospitals, which do operate on the Sabbath uh, in Israel, like police protection and military protection, which operates on the Sabbath in Israel, are clearly in line with historical Judaism that decided Hillel's sanctity for life view was the one that you follow in terms of, of the Sabbath. And that is exactly the opposite of the way that most of our manuals suggest Pharisees operated when they say, oh, those are horrible Pharisees wouldn't set a bone on the Sabbath. And that's yeah. just not true across the board. Right. And that's the thing to remember. 
There, there, are, there are all sorts of complexities going on behind the simplified scene that we're painted with in the Gospels. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but these were good guys. And the important thing about Pharisees is that Phariseeism becomes Judaism. Yeah. You know, the Sadducees, who were the enemies of Jesus, and who are sometimes called Sadducees, but more often you see them simply called the chief priests and elders. They're the yeah. ones behind most of the skullduggery and the um, the uh, conspiracy against Jesus. And so, when you uh, uh, when you see, um, for example, um, the uh, the small Sanhedrin that votes to convict Jesus, uh, that was chief priests and and scribes, except for one person. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was the single Pharisee that had been invited to that uh, small quorum session. And he had voted against the, the the conviction of Jesus. And that had to be because, according to uh, Jewish law of the Sanhedrin at the time, you could not have a unanimous verdict. One member of the house had to have been the voice for the accused. And Joseph of Arimathea was that voice. But there wasn't another Pharisee on that small Sanhedrin that convicted Jesus. So that, how do we know that? Um, well, first of all, because the Pharisees are seen in the context of the New Testament, especially as you move into Acts, as not hostile to Jesus in general. And secondly, this was a Sadducee thing, which no Pharisee was going to support anyway. And the thing about the chief priests and elders uh, in calling this thing together is that they did it essentially in the middle of the night. Yeah. They didn't call like they did the whole Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, when it says the full Senate of the House of Israel. They called only Sadducees whom they could rely on to convict, except for that one person they knew that would vote in the opposite, Joseph of Arimathea, who is specifically... Uh, related as having voted against the conviction of Jesus. And and so, uh, and we do know that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are uh, often uh, are at odds with each other. Uh, and, and you can't tell from various little clues as you read that um, what we might call the passion narrative or the, the stories of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. It's really only Sadducees that you see being named or, or uh, singled out there. So it's kind of uh, inductive, uh, just pulling all the pieces together that's bringing you to that conclusion then. To be perfectly, to be perfectly uh, open here, in the book of John, uh, as you see Jesus going to the garden in, in, in John 18, right? Mm -hmm. um, you also note that it says that a company of the chief priests and the soldiers and Pharisees came or had sent actually the arrest party. Right. Well, so the Pharisees are mentioned in the authorization to arrest, but that's a different thing than the trial and what would happen to Jesus. Uh, my own personal feeling is that uh, arresting Jesus was one thing that perhaps some Shemaiites might have said, you know, he really is uh, is is very vocal and, and maybe we ought to arrest him. But I can't imagine even Shemaiites voting to um to crucify him especially not on um you know not during a passover season yeah uh, and during the... this just doesn't work yeah um, because in fact, the fact that it is passover probably ensured that a lot of pharisees weren't going to be out doing that oh <laughs> yeah precisely yeah. yeah this was this was um you know it, it's not it's not the eve of passover but it's not long before Passover, a couple of days right. before passover and this was just not something that they were going to be involved in but the sadducees didn't care um yeah. so th this is very interesting but the pharisees are these noble people who because when the romans destroyed jerusalem in 70 uh, the Sadducees were all killed. Uh, in fact, they mostly were killed in the internal Jewish um, uh, intrigues in Jerusalem while the During Romans... the siege. Yeah. The Sadducees were all killed. The other folks, the, the Essene, were all done away with. The only Jews that survive into the second century to perpetuate Judaism are the Pharisees. 
And that's why all Judaism today descends from the religion of the Pharisees. They don't even have to call it Phariseeism in the second century. It's just rabbinical Judaism. Yeah. And the I, I think that written down there, is, is the traditions of the Pharisees. Yeah. And I think there's some evidence there may have been some Sadducees who tried to continue their power base for a little while, but their power base is also the temple. And once that's gone, they really have no no power base. And so there might be a few who are trying to continue, but pretty soon they, they're just they've disappeared. Well, but yeah, through death what, or loss of influence, they're, they're gone. What we know from what we know from Josephus is that the, most of the high priests were killed. Yeah, uh, in in the uh, in the by the by the Sicarii, by the zealots inside yeah. Jerusalem as Rome was besieging, and there might have been a few that escaped, but they didn't last for long. No, I I agree with that. But the uh, Pharisees were much. robust, and they also had a. Um, a flexible view of how the law of Moses should work, that as painful as it was, was over a few decades, as you moved into the second century, able to accommodate the loss of the temple yeah. and still proceed forward with that part of the law of Moses commandments that could be lived, the ethical commandments and the personal commandments of the law of Moses. Good. I'll also say, and I'd like your opinion on this, um, it seems to me that in terms of, of uh, Jews in general, and that includes the Pharisees and all the Sadducees who are really based out of Jerusalem, that uh, Jesus has a different reception from, from those who live in Jerusalem than those who are in the Galilee area or somewhere else. So that, for example, when you get in, say, uh, Mark chapter 7 or, or Matthew chapter 15, when there's a group that is coming to, to try and have a little contention with them or to tempt them, it's specific. These are people from, these are Pharisees from Jerusalem. And I think that there's a different interaction with that group. And maybe there's my eyes just based on the arguments they're making, but you know, you haven't washed your hands before eating this kind of thing. Um, I, 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 it's just my impression as I look at it, that Jerusalem is more of a, there's more resistance to Jesus in Jerusalem than there is among the general population, including general Pharisaism, as it's spread out away from there. Sure. There are plenty of Pharisees in Galilee. Uh, I mean, yeah. they're in the synagogues everywhere, and you see that in the narratives. But the schools, the, the big schools of Pharisaeism were in Jerusalem. Right. Uh, the school of Hillel, the school of Shammai, and, and others that, you know, are listed, but we won't name here because we want to keep this simple. Um uh, again, the way that I look at those those narratives in Mark 7 and, and Matthew 15, where the Pharisees challenge Jesus. Um, um, and then they're offended it, by his answers, which I don't blame them because his answers are, well, you're hypocrites. And Isaiah was talking about you when he said, you, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And so, I mean, the Savior has some harsh things to say. And then his apostles say, OK, this group was offended. But this is, yeah, seems well, to be that group, group came out to get him. Whoever that was, uh, they came out with a specific goal to come and get him. That's and exactly not right. all Pharisees did that. But, you know, right. when you right. when you read the Gospels, you need to remember that the Gospels are reporting in the same way that we report stuff even on the news today. Yeah. Uh, um, conflict, the unusual. Conflict gets attention. Yeah. That's why the Shemaiites that oppose the Sabbath healings are emphasized. But the Hillelites in the background, right. you don't notice them. But that's one exactly of the right. things about Mark 7 and Matthew 15 that's interesting is that um, uh, Jesus does not dispute with these Pharisees of Jerusalem on the question of the washings that they had brought up. You know, why don't your uh, disciples wash? He didn't dispute the legality of the law of Moses ritual washings. He instead answers them. Uh, by saying, you are so corrupt that you take something that was never meant to be read the way you read it, and you 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 cause problem because of it. The the Corbin laws, right? right? Yeah, that's so, right there. So, so Jesus actually redirects the question with not an issue of washing, which he said is the commandment, but in the case right here, it's not all that important. Okay. Uh, a place where he saw that group as twisting the law for their own financial gain, yeah. uh, not not you know uh, supporting their parents with money that they had artificially escrowed to as temple Corbin, and yeah. so so that's very clever. Most people don't notice that Jesus actually changes the argument there. 
No, and, it, and it's interesting to me because they have come to get him. And so he uses it. They've chosen their issue that they're going to try and get him on. So he uses it as an opportunity to take an issue with them that he is not happy with. And yeah, so like, yeah. Well, if we're going to talk about issues, let me, let me I've got one for you. And right? specifically where they had approved a corruption of the intent of the law. Right. Uh, which, again, is why I think that that uh, a group like that is more likely to have been from another school and not the school of Hillel, because I, I don't see the Corbin corruption in any Jewish source anywhere. Yeah. If it was happening, and I agree that it must have been in Mark seven, it's not something that survived to come into Judaism of the second century. Yeah. Uh, By the time we're getting them to write down all of these things. They're not writing that down, so it, it didn't it didn't pass the muster of I guess majority approval. Of yeah, it, right? it, it, these these things happen and and become part of a Judaism which endures through something that is called the slow veto, yeah. which is that uh, traditions over a very long time will become the accepted majority only after having been tested and tried and agreed to and consensus and argued. And so the development of Judaism from Pharisee origins was a very long process. And one of the things that's interesting about this, and by the way, here's where I'll make some of your other experts mad, and I glory in doing so, uh, is that we have very, very good source material for what Pharisees believed and how they um, employed it at the time of Jesus and the apostles. And those sources are the Mishnah of the Talmud. A lot of people, including people in uh, who are familiar with, with Judaism in uh, among the Latter-day Saints, will say, oh, the Mishnah is not reliable to understand Judaism of the first century on the part of the Pharisees because it's so late, it's, it's, it's second, third century, it, it doesn't accurately reflect this. Incorrect. The Mishnah was living memory of people who had either seen the temple before it was destroyed or knew people who had been alive when the temple still stood. The Mishnah begins to be compiled as early as 150 AD. Uh, the midpoint of its compilation is 170. And the end point of revising that compilation is 200 AD. It's not that they started in 200 AD, over 100 years after. That's, that's when that thing was done. And in 150, 160, 170 AD, you had Jewish sages who when, they're, who, when they were young men, had known uh, Gamliel uh, and had known uh, Rabbi Akiva and had known others and who had received from people coming out of the first century, real vocal confirmation of how things had been at the time the temple stood. Every bit as much as the way that we would say someone like, say, James E. Talmadge had known apostles who had known Joseph Smith. Right. That's and, important. That link. Yeah, it is. The, and it brings Krishna up an is very reliable in terms of tracing Pharisee belief and origins right back to the first century at the time the temple still stood. And and this brings up an important cultural element that I think is worth uh, uh, commenting on. So uh, I think you said well enough that there are various points of view on this and you've represented yours eloquently. But one thing we often don't think of, really the Mishnah is trying to write down what had been passed on uh, as oral law. And oral law was a big thing in, in Jewish culture, but lots of cultures around there. Uh, you're kind of moving from... Uh, passing things on orally to the importance of writing them down. But we underestimate their ability to pass things on orally because we are so much not and pass it down orally culture. We want to write it down, right? Their ability yeah. to, to hear things, remember them, and pass them on orally because that's what they had to rely on. Was because they practiced higher. it. They practiced yeah, that, it. it was... That's exactly right. They were trained in how to do it. Uh, it they, they spent time. They took it seriously. They spent time. Uh, they, they would have their disciples. Uh, practice it and, and by and the way they practice it is by passing this on orally to them and then they'd have to pass it right uh they were very good at it so now it, it's also 
possible that uh, so this slow veto works its way in by the time you're getting to this oral law a little bit. But but the oral law, I think, that is received and written down is is not it's not going to have changed much if it's well, changing. The at interesting all. Thing they were about, very good at passing that on. Yeah. The interesting thing is, is it, it, the Mishnah is not just oral law. It's oral law. OK, it's it's um, uh, Yudah Hanasi, the Judah, the prince. Right. Mid second century at Sephoris, where you and I have taught robustly, right? Yep. Uh, gets together this school of 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 sages, uh, all of whom have either first or second hand recollection of the period of the temple, and they they begin to commit to writing everything that was right. the view of all the sages and all schools. It wasn't that they wrote down one way of it; right. they wrote down the discussions and the disagreements and the art, everything that had been, right. this was key. And, and the reconciling of those happens only after time, only after the Mishnah was compiled and was itself Jewish writ. This, this is something the Gemara does. Uh, the other part of the Talmud is much bigger is it starts to reconcile the differences that the sages in the Mishnah had. So, yeah, so it's, for example, it's the arguments about the arguments and how to come to conclusion about those arguments. On on Shabbat, the tractate Shabbat will tell you what Shammai thought and what Hillel thought. And right. it doesn't resolve it. The resolving of that and the veto of, of Shammai's view about healing versus the exception of, of, of Hillel's comes later in Jewish history. But but it was it was uh, it was still robustly represented, and so you have a very good record uh, of things there, including how things were done at the temple, including the mention of important individuals uh, among the sages and the earlier Pharisees. Uh, for example, one Nakdimon ben Gurion, who is surely the Nicodemus of the Book of John, um, and and we know these people. The um, the thing about the uh, uh, the 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 Mishnah is that it was written down out of a realization of the rabbis beginning around 150 or, or even really starting around 140 mm. okay, that if they even though they'd had this oral tradition for centuries where they had developed how you do Judaism and you pass it orally la 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 Jehuda Hanasi convinced them one more war with Rome and the oral law will disappear. Because every time a Roman sword goes through a rabbi's skull, you lose that volume of Torah, uh, of oral Torah. Right. And so we have to write this down. They were resistant to him, but he eventually convinced them that after the first Jewish war and the second Jewish war, the Bar Kokhba war, so many Jews, well over a million have been killed, including many sages. You had to write this down to preserve it. And one of the things that is the genius about Yudan Asi, uh, this post-Pharisee of the second century that winds up preserving Pharisee doctrine in the Mishnah with his effort to gather these sages and have them over decades write it down, is that he was essentially uh, um, uh, parroting a Book of Mormon truth. And that is that you must write it down that God commands people everywhere to write. And if you do not write it down, it cannot be preserved. So even though it was considered by the Pharisees to be the traditions of the elders and the oral Torah, which was not supposed to be written down, the exigencies of post-Roman uh, War I and Roman War II reality convinced them, write this down. And it's a treasure to the world because it's the basis of Judaism, this highly, highly moral, highly remarkable religious tradition that has 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 blessed humankind for 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 two millennia. But it's also the background to understanding the New Testament accounts of Jesus and the apostles. Very good, very good. So we'll have, we've been going long enough. We'll probably have to to wrap it up. And so I'll, I'll just uh, encourage. I mean, I, I don't think we're trying to say. That there weren't uh, times where uh, the the Pharisees and the Savior. I think there are times they just debated in the tradition of of the Halakha debates that they would have, and there are some times where they went at each other a little bit. Um, and and let's not confuse that with uh, the putting him to death, as you said, 
and just encourage our readers to, to have a different eye for that and look and see what you see as you go through and, and read it. So with that in mind, I'll just ask you, what are, what are the last the last two or three minutes? Uh, how would you like to wrap this up? Well, because you brought that up, let me just mention this, this item that's found in Jesus last week, mm-hmm. his last episodes at the temple, right? On the last day of his public ministry, he's confronted by someone who um, Matthew and Mark identify as Pharisees, okay? Uh, asking you know him a question about like tribute to caesar and other things like this okay right um but it's luke that's very careful in his um in his recording of what happened uh, and i'm absolutely sure luke was an eyewitness to this and and knew what was going on because luke notes that the people that were challenging jesus were pretending to be pharisees not real pharisees in other words, where you see in Matthew and, and Mark that Jesus is confronted by Pharisees who are hostile to him and are trying to trick him into answering a question, it's actually uh, uh, stooges planted by the Sadducees who are pretending to be Pharisees. And that, by the way, is outlined in the chapter here, that kind of adventure. What it means is you have to look at the story carefully. But the other thing is that in that same on that same day, you have Jesus um, questioned by a Pharisee in, in Matthew about what's the most important commandment of the law, right? Mm-hmm. And it says there that uh, that the, the, the doctor of the law, the Pharisee, came tempting him, asking him, Master, which is the greatest commandment? And then, you know, Jesus answers, love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, 5, right? right? Love your as yourself, Leviticus nineteen eighteen. These are the these are the these are the Torah. Everything else is, you know, commentary. Um, and uh, that word tempting in King James Matthew is a mistranslation and a deliberate mistranslation by the King James scholars to to make the reader look askance at the at the questioner, this Pharisee. The, the the Greek word there, if you look in the footnote, is to test, to try, to prove. It's actually the, the Greek term pierazo. And it's it's uh, that this man was asking a legitimate question to see what Jesus' position was. Master, what's your, what's your view of what's the most important commandment in the law? And Jesus doesn't say back to him in Matthew, oh, you, you sneaky Pharisee, you're trying to treat me. Huh? Well, I'll give you the answer. He engages the question. Love yeah, the Lord this isn't God. him turning it on them like we see in some of the right. places. Yeah. It was not a Pharisee who was trying to, you know, a quizzling who was trying to entrap Jesus. And the King James translation in using the word tempting uses a poor and misleading translation because the guys who translated, I'm sorry to say, weren't fond of Jews. Okay. And so you misrepresent him. Now, if you read the same story in Mark, same guy asking, it doesn't have that word in Mark, right? But it goes on that when this Pharisee asked Jesus, what's the most important you know, um, commandment in the law? Jesus answers, love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself. On these two, two commandments hang all along the prophets. And the Pharisee then answers back in Mark, which is why you ought to read Mark. He says, that's true, master. Thou was said correctly. Uh, uh, that is the most, the greatest commandment to love your Lord, your God, and, and to love your neighbor of yourself. And these commandments are more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's what the Torah is about. This Pharisee is a good guy, and he understands what the ethics of the law are, and he praises Jesus. He's not there to entrap him. So if you only read Matthew, you'll miss that, but read the same story in Mark. And then in Mark, Jesus says something back to him that I only hope he will say to me one day, thou art not far from eternal life. No? Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, to a Pharisee, a Pharisee could have belief and, and action, which would put him, you know, in the parking lot of eternal life. And that's pretty cool. Uh, the Pharisees overall were not bad people there were some bad actors like there are anywhere there were some hypocrites by the way in matthew 23 when jesus says scribes pharisees hypocrites 
people generally assume that he is painting all Pharisees as as hypocrites. I see why you would assume that. Um, I think what's happening is a flock shot. Where, what? A flock shot, you know, where you aim your gun up at yeah. the whole bunch of ducks and you're trying to bring down one, but but yeah. it's a shot. When in days of old, Carrie, and you're old enough to remember this, maybe some younger listeners aren't, but when Latter-day Saint men would go to general priesthood, when we used to have that, yeah. and if you went back, say, oh, President Monson was a cupcake. He was never tough on us. He was just, he loved people. Uh, President Hinckley could be at times very demanding of the brethren and say, you're yep. not doing what you should. And some of you are guilty of, of you know, uh, mistreating your spouses and your family. Some of you are involved in, in um, you know, internet sites you shouldn't be on. Yep. You need to change that, brethren. Now, if you went back to when President Kimball was president of the church, <laughs> yep. it was scary to go to the general priesthood meeting because the brethren spoke to us as a group and said, you're not keeping the commandments and stop this. But that was a flock shot. It's not that every Latter-day Saint priesthood holder was a, a, a hypocrite or a commandment violator. It's just that that's how you spoke to a large crowd. And that, I think, is what Jesus was doing in Matthew 23 when he says, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because they all weren't, no. even though some were and needed to repent. Well said. Well said. Well, good. And and uh, I'll just also say that even among, uh, I love the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I love the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and even so, there are some bad actors in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh, we don't have any hypocrites. Uh, no, 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 that can't yeah. be, right? No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we, we love them anyway. We love the New Testament. We love the scriptures. Uh, I love what you're doing. I mean, this yeah. this effort you're making, these podcasts are so great, and, and hopefully... You know, uh, I won't have misled too many people today. Um, I am <laughs> well, not nothing Jewish. else we want to give them food for thought. I'm never going to be Jewish. I'm not Jewish. Uh, I, I just would like the record straight in terms of, of you know, what's going on in the New Testament. That's most important because Jesus was highly respectful to many Pharisees. And, and, uh, and many were highly respectful him. to him. They of him. Yeah. And you see that, especially in the culmination of the book of Acts, right? Acts chapter 5 when they vote to save the apostles. Wow. Um, so that's that's what we could say about Pharisees. Just remember all the scriptures are true. The Savior is the Messiah and King of Israel and our Savior. And and there you go. Amen. Amen. So maybe I'll, I'll kind of wrap up this hybrid roundtable by saying, you know, I think on, on many issues, uh, Dr. Chadwick, Dr. Hatch, Dr. Shannon and myself would agree. And on many issues, among the four of us, there are probably five opinions, uh, which is a saying about Jewish rabbis as well, or uh, uh, probably Pharisees, uh, but but still largely agreeing, but with slightly different takes and so on. And what I hope comes from this is that it makes every reader read just a little more carefully. So everyone in our audience, as you read, read more carefully. That's part of my goal for all of this. I hope that podcasts aren't making it so that people listen to this and feel like they've done their study and they don't have to read. What we want is for you to go back in and read and read more carefully, see how, how real it is, see how those people are like us, see how their society with different people do, acting different ways and thinking different ways is like us and our culture and our society, and then figure out how to apply this to yourself and ask yourself when the Savior uh, maybe has, a, 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 as you just said, this flock shot where he talks about hypocrites and so on, um, Ask yourself, not so much, you know, is this what was going on with all Pharisees? It's not going on with all of anyone. But ask yourself, how might it be true of me? The, the Lord is it I question. That's what I would love for us all to be asking. And uh, typically we'll find a way that we can uh, improve if we'll ask ourselves that question. So uh, thanks to, to Dr. Chadwick. And even though they're, they're not with us now, thanks to Dr. Hatch and Dr. Shannon. And uh, I hope it uh, helps our audience. Uh, appreciate uh, the, the story of the New Testament and Christ and uh, those around him all the more. So thank you. 